before we begin, today is the uh, next to the last sermon in this series through First Timothy. Um, and to a certain extent, it is part two of what we talked about, or the follow-up to what we talked about last week. And it uh, has a more, well, theological, but also a practical emphasis. But be sure to come, if you can, next week uh, for the final sermon in this series because we'll be looking next week at four brief passages from 1 Timothy that all focus and concentrate on Jesus Christ. So I think that is, I mean, there's no better way to finish a series going through this book than on Jesus. So just a little preview of coming attractions. So before uh, today, let's begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this beautiful day that you've given us. Thank you for our being able to gather here. Uh, and uh, Lord God, thank you for your word, and I pray that you will apply these truths to our hearts and minds, wills and lives to help to conform us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Now last week, we saw that money is spiritual. It reveals our heart. Yet our attitude towards and our use of money and possessions is more than that. What we do with our money uh, has everlasting implications. It will affect our everlasting lives uh, on the new earth. Now you may think that's strange. Many people seem to have the idea that when we stand before the Lord in the judgment, about the only thing that will be asked us is, did you receive Jesus Christ into your heart as your personal savior? And if the answer is yes, we're in. If the answer is no, we're out. Uh, but it won't be like that at all. Uh, the, it is true that we're saved only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot earn our salvation by anything we do. However, the Bible makes clear that the judgment involves a review of our entire life. Uh, additionally, the Bible and Jesus himself made clear that at the judgment, there will be rewards given and losses suffered based upon what we have done in this life. And those rewards and losses will affect our eternal lives on the new earth forever. Here are just three examples. In Luke 19, the parable of the minas, Jesus said that at the judgment, the person who was given 10 minas and made 10 more would be given authority over 10 cities. The person who was given five minas and made five more would be given authority over five cities. But the one who was given one mina and did nothing with it, his mina would be taken away from him and given to the one who had ten. Now, in that parable, Jesus is telling us that there will be differences in rewards and responsibilities of those who are in eternal life uh, in the new heaven and the new earth. In 1 Corinthians uh, 3, verses 10 through 15, Paul says this. He says, According 
to the grace of God which was given to me. Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, uh, which he has built on it, remains, he will, re he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. This again is talking about the judgment. The day, which Paul refers to here, uh, is a frequent term for the judgment. And fire is often used as a meta metaphor for God's judgment. Paul is telling us here that what we do in this life makes a difference, and those differences will reflect themselves in some way in the nature of our eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. On the other hand, if you have the cup of cold water, but don't give it, you won't lose your salvation, but you will not receive the reward. So what Jesus is saying is similar to what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 3, namely, there will be rewards given and losses suffered at the judgment based on what we do in this life. Now, what we do with our money reveals our heart and is such an important part of life and therefore an important basis of the rewards uh, given and the losses suffered at the judgment will be what we do with our money in this life. That is why Jesus specifically told us in Matthew chapter 6 and again in Luke chapter 12, he said, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we store up our treasures in heaven? Well, today's passage of scripture, 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, answer that question. In those verses, 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, Paul says this. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that 
which is life indeed. Now this is telling us that every dollar we give to build the kingdom and to help the poor and the needy because we love Jesus, we don't lose it, but we are sending it on ahead and it will bless us forever. Now, we will see this uh, as we first get an overview of this passage and then consider the specifics of this passage. Verse 17 tells us who the rich are in this present world. Verse 18 says what we should be doing with our money. And verse 19 tells us the results we may expect based upon what we do with our money. So first, an overview of the passage. Now, in many respects, verses 17 through 19 are the counterpart to 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 12, which we looked at last week. In verses 6 through 8, Paul had told us to be content even if the only things we have are something to eat and something to wear. In verse 9, he was warning the rich. Now he is instructing the rich. In verse 10, he warned us about the love of money. Now he's giving us a test uh, for us to see whether or not we have the love of money. In verse 11, he told us to flee from the love of money and pursue the right attitude and lifestyle. Now he's showing us what the right attitude and lifestyle are and what they lead to. In verse 12, he exhorted us, fight the good fight of faith. Now he's showing us what faithfulness looks like. And in verse 12, he also told us, take hold of eternal life. Now he again uses the same verb, take hold, and he shows us how we do that. So with that overview, let's take a look at the specifics of the passage. Verse 17 talks about those who are rich in this present world. Who's he talking about? Well, if someone asks us, are you rich? Most of us would probably look to someone like Bill Gates, who has lots more than we have, and say, I'm not rich, he's rich. However, that is not the biblical standard of comparison. Our standard is Jesus. Now, Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He taught us to pray for the basic necessities of our life. Remember, he said, give us this day our daily bread. In uh, 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8, Paul had argued if we have something to eat and something to wear, with these we shall be content. Why did he say that? The reason is because that is all Jesus had. Uh, Jesus never starved. He had something to eat. But Jesus owned only one thing in the world, the clothes he wore. And they even took those away from him when they killed him. What Paul was saying is this, if you have no more 
than Jesus had. Something to eat and something to wear. But you have Jesus. Is he enough for you? Now Paul went on to strongly warn against the love of money and the desire to get rich in verses 9 and 10. Jesus did not store up vast treasures on earth, and he told us not to do so, but to store up our treasure in heaven, as we just read from Matthew chapter 6. So when we look through biblical eyes, through Jesus' eyes, the rich are anyone who have more than they need uh, to meet their basic necessities of life. They have more than something to eat and something to wear. In other words, biblically speaking, and specifically in the context of this passage, a person is rich if he has more than Jesus had. Or anyone in, is rich if he or she has more than they need to meet the basic necessities of life. So let's look at ourselves. We all have a place to live. Jesus didn't. In our houses, we have tables and chairs and TVs and all kinds of stuff. Jesus never had any of that. We have cars. Jesus didn't even own a donkey. And we all have some money, but Jesus had to borrow somebody's coin. Now, it is true that there are degrees of richness. You may be only a little rich. In other words, you only have a little more than you need to meet your basic necessities of life. Or you may be a lot rich. You have a lot more than you need to meet your basic necessities of life. But compared to Jesus, we are all rich. Now, an important aspect of how we live is what we do with our money and our possessions. The Bible speaks a lot about this. Among other things, the Bible tells us that we need to provide for ourselves and for our family. We should not waste our money, but be frugal so as to t be able to take care of future needs. We are to provide for the government and repay our creditors. But the Bible also repeatedly says that helping the poor and the needy and building the kingdom are where we should focus our giving. Now that leads us to verse 18, what we should be doing with our money. Again, verse 18 says, instruct them, referring to the rich, in other words, everyone in this room, to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now, when we come to Christ, uh, God changes us. He gives us new hearts, and he gives us the mind of Christ. We are no longer the unregenerate people we used to be who were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, we demonstrate this new life in our new attitudes, values, and priorities and by how we live. A prime area where we demonstrate this new life with its new attitudes and priorities is what we do with our money. In verse 17, Paul had said, riches looked at only as material objects and 
only from the standpoint of this present world, he said, riches are uncertain. But he added that God gives to us richly. The riches God has given to us include a bountiful earth, our bodies and minds, material wealth, which we earn and create, uh, our new lives, the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of us, the church, our family, whom we should be able to go to for material as well as spiritual help, and ultimately, we will be given glorious new bodies and a glorious new earth. All of these things are good and to be enjoyed. Now, in verse 18, his use of the word rich shows us what true riches are and how truly rich people act. What Paul is saying here is that since God has so richly given so much to us, we should be rich in good works and generous to others. Now, those of us who have more than we need to meet the basic necessities of life are to be generous givers, to help the poor and the needy, and to build the kingdom. Not in order to earn God's favor, but precisely because we have already received God's favor. Now, last week, we talked about how to do that by budgeting, keeping financial records, and the fact that our giving should be budgeted percentage giving. We see the concept of being generous givers to help the poor and the needy and to build the kingdom of God all over the New Testament. Here are just three examples. An example from Jesus, a general command from Paul, uh, and an example of Christians from the early church who clearly understood these things and were doing it right. Uh, in Mark 10, verse 21, regarding the rich young ruler, Jesus said, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Notice that Jesus was saying that by giving to the poor, that is how one stores up our treasure in heaven. Ephesians 4, verse 28, Paul said this, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one in need. So again, our money and our resources are not exclusively for ourselves. God enables us to make money to help those in need. And that need can be either physical, the poor, or spiritual, the lost. And here's the early church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Paul says this, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify 
that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now the context there was this. Paul was going around the different churches in Greece, taking up a collection to give to the poor uh, believers in Judea because there was a famine. Uh, And notice something here. Paul did not even have to force or even exhort the Macedonians to give. They gave of their own accord. But more than that, Now, I'm reading a little bit between the lines here, but I think that what was going on when Paul got to Macedonia was something like this. I think he looked around and he said something like, you guys don't have to give anything. I had no idea you were so poor and afflicted and things were so bad here. But the Macedonians said, no, Don't deprive us of the joy of giving. That explains why verse 4 says that they were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. You see, the Macedonians understood this. And notice one other thing. In verse 5, it says, and this was not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now, those Macedonians understood the gospel and the implications of the gospel. Um, And they understood the two great commandments of Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is precisely what Paul is saying in verse 5 when he says, they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us. By the will of God. In other words, those Macedonians demonstrated by their giving that they understood the two great commands of Jesus. Now that leads us back to 1 Timothy 6, verse 19, where Paul says that as they uh, are rich in good works and are generous and ready to share, they are storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Even though we are not to be generous givers in order to earn God's favor, we will be rewarded for our giving. Those who have need, of course, benefit uh, from the generosity of those who give. However, that is not the focus of Paul's argument here in 1 Timothy 6. As one commentator puts it, the basic thrust is clear. By being generous, the rich are not losing their wealth. Rather, they are laying it away in heaven. And by doing so, they are establishing a firm foundation for eternity, for life That is truly life. Remember Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus said, and I'll read it again, 
do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now here in 1 Timothy 6 verse 19, Paul is telling us how we store up our treasures in heaven. We do that by being generous givers now to help the poor and the needy and to build and spread the kingdom. And notice that Paul is using the same words Jesus used. He talks about storing up treasure. In verse 19, Paul is also giving us a tremendous incentive to be generous givers. He's saying that what we give now is not lost to us, but is part of the foundation we are laying for our future. What future? Our eternal future. In other words, what we do with our money and our possessions here will bring us everlasting rewards and benefits on the new earth where we will live forever. Even the smallest gift, a cup of cold water, given to help someone in need because the giver loves Jesus, will be rewarded. And those rewards will last forever. It's like every dollar we give to help the poor and the needy and to help spread and build the kingdom of God is not lost to us but it is deposited into a heavenly bank account with our name on it. And that account will pay us back and we will be able to reap the benefits for the next 10,000 million trillion billion zillion years. We are going to be blessed beyond measure forever if we live faithfully and are generous givers now because we love the Lord. You see, what Paul is saying is we would be fools not to be generous givers. What an incentive! But the choice of what we do is up to us. But what about the other side of the coin? Suppose we are not generous givers to help the poor and the needy and to build the kingdom now. Suppose we use most of our excess wealth to feather our own nest, so to say. What then? Well, the Apostle James talks about that uh, in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Here's what he says. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have lived a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. 
Notice that James, like Paul, uses the very language that Jesus used about storing up your treasure, about moths eating, and rust destroying. James is using that language to condemn the rich. In other words, what we do with our money will either be commended and rewarded or it will be condemned at the judgment. It is not neutral. James is saying that we store up our treasures on earth by loving money and possessions, by constantly striving to make and have more, by hoarding our money, and by spending it on ourselves rather than by giving it generously to help the poor and the needy and to build and spread the kingdom, and by living lives of luxury and excess. In God's eyes, our riches rot and rust, and our garments become moth-eaten when we do that. Now notice that in James 5, verse 3, James says, it is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Now some people think that the last days are a period of time way in the future, just before Jesus comes again. That is not true. And we know that because on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit filled the disciples and they began speaking with other languages, the people in Jerusalem thought they were drunk. But Peter stood up and in Acts 2 said, these people are not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. In other words, it's too early to be drunk. Then Peter went on and explained in Acts 2 verse 17, he said, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. So we know that the last days began at least as of the day of Pentecost. In fact, in 1 John 2, verse 18, two times John says, this is the last hour. So we have been in the last days, and indeed in the last hour for the last 2,000 years. So James was talking about what people do with their money now. Now, many people think that riches are a sign of God's favor. It is true, of course, that God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, as uh, Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. But the context of the entire passage in James is that the wealth of the rich people there is a sign not of God's favor, but of his judgment. The teaching of the so-called prosperity gospel, that riches are inevitably a sign of God's favor is simply not true. After all, Jesus himself was a poor man who was persecuted by the rich and the powerful and ultimately was arrested, beaten, unjustly accused, and crucified like a common slave or, or criminal. Paul was rich, but that was before he became a Christian. After he became a Christian, he was beaten, whipped, stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned, and ultimately had his head cut off. 
Now, all those things happened to Jesus and Paul, not because they lacked faith or were in sin, but precisely because they were faithful. In fact, the one sign that Jesus gives as to uh, who are his disciples is not that we have a lot of money. Rather, he said the one sign is that we love one another. Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we need to ask ourselves, how did Jesus love us? Well, he loved us truly. He didn't just say he loved us, but he showed us. When people were hungry, he fed them. When people were sick, he healed them. He also loved us equally. Men, women, young, old, rich, poor, Jews, Gentiles. No one was excluded from his love. And perhaps most importantly, he loved us sacrificially. He gave everything he had for us. Now he is calling us to love people truly, equally, and sacrificially. And that means something with respect to what we do with our money. Now, riches may indeed be a sign of God's blessing and favor, but that depends entirely on what we do with the wealth with which God has blessed us. James's point is that if we hoard and spend our money on ourselves, living lives of luxury and pleasure, instead of using what God has blessed us uh, with to help the poor and the needy and to build the kingdom of God, then our wealth will be a sign of God's judgment, not his favor. In fact, James makes that clear in James 5, verse 5. There, he is comparing the rich to cows or pigs who are being fattened up for the slaughter. Now, the day of slaughter is an Old Testament term for the day of judgment. James is telling us that like animals who are about to be slaughtered, the rich, in their wealth and ease, are unaware, even on the very day of their death, that they are about to be condemned and slaughtered. And as he pointed out uh, in James 5, verse 3, their very wealth upon which they rely and which they hold as a sign of God's favor will be a witness against them on the day of judgment. It is a witness against them because they used it for themselves rather than using it to help others and to help spread the kingdom of God. In short, James, like Paul, is telling us that ultimately our money is spiritual. Now he is using very strong language because he knows, as Jesus told us in Matthew 6, that money blinds us 
to its true spiritual nature. What we do with our money, perhaps more than anything else, reveals who our true Lord is. And that is why Jesus said more than once, you cannot serve God and wealth. Whether or not we understand and heed James's warning in James 5 and follow Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, is a matter of fundamental importance for us, both in this life and in the life to come. Now, these eternal implications will be revealed at the judgment, but they will also be revealed in this life. So first, with respect to the judgment, Jesus taught a basic principle of God's judgment, which is this. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom much has been entrusted, of him they will ask the more. Now, because wealth carries with it increased obligations and thereby increased accountability, those who are wealthy in this life face a potentially stricter judgment than those who are not wealthy. It's similar to what James said in James 3, verse 1, let not many of you become teachers knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Again, we see the principle to whom much has been given, of him much will be required. Now that applies in all areas of life. Our talents, abilities, the position God has given us, and how much money and how many possessions we have. Now, the Apostle James used Christ's language to warn wealthy people who have not used their wealth as they are supposed to. He said that because of the judgment the wealthy faced, they should weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. He concluded that they face judgment like cows or pigs who have fattened up your hearts in the day of slaughter. On the other hand, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul has told us that money actually gives us a great opportunity to help others and ourselves. In fact, every dollar we use and we give to build the kingdom and to help the poor and the needy, we don't lose it, but we're sending it on ahead and it will bless us forever. Now, Some of you may be thinking, wait a second, in eternity there will be no tears, no sorrow, no jealousy, nor envy, or anything like that. So how can there be some people in the new heaven and on the new earth who have a lot more than others? Wouldn't that just be perpetuating the inequalities now present uh, between the rich and the poor uh, here on the earth and lead to envy, jealousy, and some people looking down on others? Well, that's a fair question, and I would approach it this way. First, Jesus told Peter uh, in Matthew 16, 
to think the way God thinks, not the way man thinks. What I mean is this. As we have said, money and things are spiritual. God is concerned with our character and our faithfulness, and the judgment will reflect that. Now, Nancy has a friend who is not the brightest bulb in the pack. She doesn't have a great education, and she does not have a lot of money and things like I have. But she loves the Lord. And I often think that she and others like her will end up way up here in eternity, and I'll be somewhere down here because of what she does with the little she has compared to what I have not done with the greater amount of things that I have. Now second, and this goes along with the first point, if we are really thinking the way God thinks, don't we rejoice when good things happen to people regardless of who they are regardless of who did the good, and regardless of who gets the credit. It is only our selfishness that makes us jealous or envious of others when good things happen to them and when they have things that we don't have. But jealousy and envy and selfishness are all sinful attitudes. You see, in some way, when we receive glorious new bodies like Christ's and we are in the new heaven and on the new earth, I think that it will not just be our bodies that are transformed, but our minds, our attitudes, and our evaluation of things. We will see how people like Nancy's friend are rewarded for a faithful life well-lived here on this earth, and we will rejoice with her. We won't be envious at all. And third, I've heard it explained this way, uh, with this example. Now, I don't know if this is correct, but it makes sense to me. I have here this mug, which holds 16 or 20 ounces, and this shot glass, which holds an ounce or two. Um, and the shot glass represents those who have not been generous givers, have not used all the blessings that they've been given in this life to help others. Uh, they've done a little bit, and so they've received a few rewards. But, you see, and in heaven and on the new earth, they will be filled to overflowing. They'll be thinking, I had no idea it was so great. This is wonderful. I can't imagine anything better. They won't be envious of people who are like the mug because they themselves are full to overflowing. They have no needs. They have nothing but joy. But people like the mug are those who have been generous givers to help the poor and build the kingdom. They've used the benefits God has given them liberally, uh, and as a result, they have received lots of rewards at the judgment. They too will be full to overflowing. They won't look down on people like the shot glass because they're full to overflowing. They're thinking, this is so wonderful. I never knew it could be so good. You see, they're not comparing themselves. 
They're, they're grateful to God and they have no needs. They haven't the need to look down on people, just like the people like the shot glass haven't the need to be envious or jealous of others because they're all full to overflowing. But there is a difference, as Jesus and Paul have indicated. Um, now, so I've been talking now about the implications of this for the judgment and our eternal existence. What about the implications in this life for how and what we do with our money and our possessions? Last week, we talked in some detail about how we can determine whether or not we are lovers of money um, and what to do about it. In the context of today's passage, one way we can determine whether or not we are lovers of money is to see what kind of givers we are. The early church understood that the gospel has implications for what we do with our money. They knew and they lived out the principle that Jesus said, who has been forgiven much, loves much. Now the early church demonstrated their love by their radical generosity. We've already seen that the church in Macedonia gave generously, even though they themselves were suffering from deep poverty and a great ordeal of affliction. But look at other similar examples. Zacchaeus voluntarily gave half of his possessions to the poor. And Jesus said that the poor widow in Luke 21 gave more than the millions that all the rich people were putting in the treasury because the principle that Jesus announced was it's not how much you give but how much you have left over after you give that's most important in the eyes of God. Remember what Jesus said about the woman who took her own costly perfume and used it to anoint him. He said, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done for me will also be spoken of in memory of her. And according to Acts chapter 4, the early church in Jerusalem, quote, began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need, end quote. As a result, no one was in need. The apostles were preaching with great power and the church grew. Now, I am convinced that one reason Acts 4 verse 33 says that the apostles were preaching with great power is that the people, by their very generosity, were confirming the message that the apostles were proclaiming. Because we all naturally tend to hold tightly onto our money and things. But the people in the early church were not doing that. They were acting very counter-culturally. Their lives were proclaiming, and their radical generosity was proclaiming. Jesus is real. He's alive. He has changed us. There's a better way to live, and we have found it. Come and join us. And the people saw that. You see, God blessed all of those churches and individuals whom I just named. He poured out his grace. 
He gave them great joy. He took care of their needs. He knit them together. He caused their witness to be powerful. They found favor with the people and he caused the church to grow. He will do the same for us if we start developing the same attitude and priorities that they had and start acting on it. And that includes what we do with our money. So let me conclude by saying this. Our money is more important than we may realize. Ultimately, money is spiritual. What we do with this is the outward and visible sign of our inward and spiritual state. It reveals who our true Lord really is. We need to talk about these things with our spouse, with our kids, and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to make whatever changes are necessary with respect to our financial management. Let us have a renewed, concerted strategy to store up our treasure in heaven. Remember, every dollar we give to build the kingdom and to help the poor and the needy because we love Jesus, we don't lose it, but we're sending it on ahead. And we are thereby opening the channel of God's blessing. Blessing for others, for the church, and for ourselves. We cannot lose when we do this. And we will be blown away at the judgment when we see the results that we have brought about by our giving and the results that we ourselves will reap for all eternity. So let me pray with you. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for your word. And Lord God, this is a very powerful passage that I know speaks to everyone here because you have blessed all of us abundantly, Lord God. Help us to use those blessings in the way that pleases you. Yes, your Bible says we need to take care of ourselves and our families and take care of future contingencies and so on and so forth. But you stress again and again the importance of using what you have given us because you've given us richly, we should be rich towards others, to the poor and the needy, and to use our riches to help missions and otherwise build the kingdom. So Lord God, plant these truths deep within our hearts and minds and wills, Lord God, and help us go out now and in the future and live lives pleasing to you. For we ask all of this in the name of Jesus.